Okay, welcome to the Sunday show of Progressive News Network here on Blog Talk Radio. I hope everybody's having a happy Sunday just prior to the 4th of July, uh, the nation's birthday. My name is Janine Moloff, and I am the producer and host of Progressive News Network and its companion show, EJR, or the Environmental Justice Report. Well, I thought it was fitting this week, just a few days before the 4th of July, Independence Day, whatever you want to call it, that we talk about really relevant issues. You know, for too long, uh, the mainstream read, a.k.a. corporate media, has taken a pass on the 4th of July, and they've reduced it to, you know, big box store sales and barbecue and, of course, fireworks, all right? Instead of talking about really substantive things, you know, it's also very apropos to talk about Juneteenth, all right? Because before the 4th of July, there was Juneteenth, and Juneteenth was basically a commemoration and celebration of the day that the last slaves in Texas were finally notified that uh, all black persons had been emancipated. Uh, Contrary to what we were taught in our history books, the fact is that there were black slaves being held in Texas that actually didn't know that the North had won the war and that they had been emancipated, and their slave owners made sure they weren't going to find out until federal forces came down and let them know. This is all very relevant. So right now, uh, I decided to focus on not just the past, but really, if you saw the advert, the GOP, in other words, the Republican steady march to what can only be called called fascism, and a specific type of fascism that frankly, would make Hitler stand up and applaud. Now, its unofficial de facto leader is Dum Donnie Trump, whose only gift seems to be very seems to be riling up the lynch mob. The GOP presidential hopefuls are all competing now to see which one of them can be more vile than the Donald, and all the while the base is sitting back, they're enjoying the circuit-sized circus sideshow of neo-Nazis and pathetic wannabes. Now, let's be honest. To call it the GOP as fascist really seems modest when we really examine the, the plan to essentially end democratic rule and incarcerate, in other words, imprison any dissenters or, and or minorities. Everything from the war on woke to the obvious demands for a legalized genocide of anyone outside the confines of white Christian fundamentalists has been granted a faux legitimacy. I'm going to call this out and offer a plan to end this, what I call, Hitlerian revival. <clears throat> I'm going to try to anyway. I, that's going to take some doing. But that's our second story. Our first story is our founder and co-producer, Rick Spizak, is also going to cover this growing fascist danger, but through the lens, official enablers in the FBI, the corporate media, and the Supreme Court in basically a killer interview with noted professor Wendy Lynn Lee. How is it, here's the question, how is it the FBI and other law enforcement agencies missed the obvious insurrection, uh, January 6th, in other words, being planned in plain sight? How did the Supreme Court enable this insurrection? 
They're good questions. And then, of course, we're going to end the show with what I call a patriotic salute to the fourth, coming from the erudite political commentary of Randy, Randy Rainbow. We'll also have a segment on My Little Margie and, of course, our venerated Jackass of the Week Award. So with no further ado, I'm going to focus on Rick's interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee. All right, let's give you some details about Professor Lee. Professor Lee is deeply committed to teaching and writing as an engaged philosopher, especially with respect to environmental, feminist, social and economic justice, and animal rights issues. Professor Lee has published approximately 45 scholarly essays in her areas of expertise, namely philosophy of language, particularly later Wittgenstein, okay, philosophy of mind-brain, feminist theory, theory of sexual identity, post-Marxian theory, non-human animal welfare, ecological aesthetics, aesthetic phenomenology, I can't say this, phenomenology, and philosophy of ecology. I apologize. Her most recent book was published uh, in 2017. The title is Echo Nihilism, the Philosophical Geopolitics of the Climate Change Apocalypse. And with that, I'm going to go to Rick's interview. I just need to scroll down here. And here we go. Okay, we're having some tech difficulties here. I'm going to try again. I'm not sure what's going on. Oh dear. Okay, we are having some definite tech difficulties here. I'm going to try one more time, and I do apologize to our listeners. Um, I'm not sure what's going on. Okay, I do apologize. The uh, quality of that audio file, there, there's a problem here. I have no idea what it is. I do apologize for that. I was looking forward to listening to it myself. Okay, so with that, I'm going to move into my segment, and hopefully later in the program we can either get this technical problem solved or we can do it the following week because Professor Lee always has incredibly uh, brilliant insights and just, you know, gives us more ideas about what we can do. Mm. I so apologize. All right. We're going to move on to my segment then. All right. And hopefully... If not this week, hopefully next week, we will have a better audio file, and you can listen to Professor Lee's segment. I, again, oh, technology, technology. Here we go. All right. So the other story that I'd planned today has to deal with some substantive issues that happened this week, some important Supreme Court decisions um, that basically certain journalists just ignored. So 
this morning I was watching Meet the Press with Chuck Todd, and, you know, when it comes to ignoring substantive and relative stories over hype and panic and, and covering the damned horse race, it never disappoints. Chuck Todd managed to totally ignore two major stories this week, and instead he focused on addiction and fentanyl. Now, don't get me wrong. The fentanyl crisis is a very real concern, as all crises of addiction are. But law enforcement's answer to this addiction crisis, namely, what, lifetime incarceration and possibly the death penalty, as it's been suggested, it's never worked. The fact is this asinine war on drugs has been going on for, what, over 50 years? And the results are the crisis of addiction has increased exponentially. So why do we keep doing it? Well, let's face it. Richard Nixon's war on drugs that the GOP openly embraced was never about, in my opinion, was never about solving addiction. It was all about having an excuse to arrest and incarcerate black people, period, so that once these people are incarcerated, they serve as slave labor for various, uh, you know, various corporations that take advantage of prison labor. That's it. It had nothing to do with anything else. You don't solve a crisis of addiction and drug abuse, whether it's fentanyl or any other substance, with incarceration, with, you know, basically criminal penalties. These are medical issues, and they demand medical remedies. Uh, So Chuck Todd had a whole panel today talking about the fentanyl crisis and pointing out how you know, over 100,000 people have died from fentanyl overdoses, uh, which is about half the amount of people that died in one year, the first year of COVID. Okay, so what was Mr. Todd saying? That what? COVID isn't as dangerous as fentanyl? Because that's just not only journalistically wrong, that's scientifically wrong. People choose to use certain drugs. They don't choose to get COVID and die. All right. But in the meanwhile, Chuck Todd and his panel, uh, he had two, he had two U S senators from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, who, um, you know, I mean, sorry, Senator Sherrod, who is the Democrat and, um, Oh, the Republican, gosh, I forget his name now. He's the one that wrote hillbilly elegy. Now, he had all these people on, but again, the two major stories were far, that he ignored were far more important than the fentanyl crisis, because these two major stories theoretically had the power to end democratic elections and could end democratic rule by revoking citizenship rights. So the two stories interlinked with the corporate GOP and the corporate Democrats, um, they're not only interlinked, but... Let me start back. The two, ah, having an issue today. All right, folks, it's it's been one of those days. Between the audio file not working, and now I'm just trying to get my rhythm back here. So the two stories that Chuck Todd and Meet the Press chose to ignore, you have Republicans that are basically owned by the G, Republicans that are owned by corporate, and then you have corporate Dems that enable the fascists and the GOP, and they both, and basically these two groups were ignored, and the two stories that were ignored were, one, there was a Supreme Court ruling 
that was handed down this Thursday, this past Thursday, in a case called Moore v. Harper. And this is a case that could have essentially nullified presidential elections and allowed uh, state legislatures to just toss our votes for president. The second story was the very real threat issued by Trump to, if he got in the second term, to possibly revoke citizenship of his political enemies. So what did corporate ersatz news maven Chuck Todd choose? Fentanyl. The fentanyl crisis. So, again, this was journalistic malfeasance on his part. Fentanyl is a serious issue, but the top story? Oh, God, no. But it was a good smokescreen for Meet the Press to avoid talking about these other two stories that affect all of us and that really put the idea of democratic rule in dire jeopardy. So let's talk about them. So right now we're going to talk about, number one, the Trump threat to his enemies. And there were multiple sources I used, but apparently Donald Trump, you know, he's running for re-election, and he was speaking at the New Hampshire Federation of Republican Women, and it was their lilac luncheon. And this was in D.C., and he delivered a speech, I wouldn't call it a speech, it was a diatribe, against what he called this growing danger of socialism and communism in the United States. Now, I'm sure those Trumpers would call me a socialist or a communist, even though I'm an entrepreneur. Because most Americans, they they don't understand these terms, okay? To them, socialism and communism means totalitarian dictatorship. Because they look no further than places like Russia, China, and the fact is, in those places, socialism, communism really isn't the case there. They have a totalitarian dictatorship, and but they call themselves socialists and communists. That's not what it is. But he spoke at the conference, and Trump announced that he will, among other things, order the department, if he's reelected, that is, order the Department of Homeland Security to basically carry out mass deportations of left-wing people, citizen and non-citizen alike, even though there's no justification for this. Okay, so he also spoke, let's see now, this is the right-wing Faith and Freedom Coalition, and he used warlike terms to quote Trump. Quote, at the end of the day, either the communists destroy America or we destroy the communists, end quote. And then Trump used language that he borrowed from his his idol, Adolf Hitler. Keep in, keep in mind, this is a man who slept with Hitler's book by his bedstand. Trump said, quote, this is the final battle. With you at my side, we will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists. And then he added, quote, we are headed towards communism. There has never been a period of time like that in our country's history, and that's the way communism starts, and we can't let it happen, end quote. So that's bad enough, but then he goes on. He's talking about how we need to purge certain groups of people from the United States. And so Trump said the following, quote, Using federal law, Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, I will order my government to deny entry to all communists and all Marxists. 
Those who come to join our country must love our country. We don't want them if they want to destroy our country. So we're going to be keeping foreign, Christian-hating, communists, socialists, and Marxists out of America. We're keeping them out of America, end quote. Okay, I don't know of many communists, socialists, or Marxists that are really eager to come to the United States, first of all. I mean, this is the antithesis of that. Uh, But he goes on, and then here's the part that's truly treacherous. And there is treason here, and Donald Trump is the one committing it. Trump said the following, quote, Today I'm announcing a new plan to protect the integrity of our immigration system. Federal law prohibits the entry of communists and totalitarians into the United States. But my question is, what are we going to do with the ones that are already here, that grew up here? I think we, sh- we have to pass a new law for them, end quote. Now, for those of you that don't know much about the history of the 20th century, let me educate you because the idea of imprisoning and deporting people that disagree with you, that are already citizens, is a direct violation of the Bill of Rights. The idea that you can't express, perhaps even talk about how maybe you want a social safety net, maybe you want Medicare for all, and because some right-winger says that's socialism, you can't talk about it? That's a violation of the First Amendment. Trump doesn't care, and neither do his followers. But the reason why this is so dangerous, this position taken by Trump exactly mirrors what Hitler did, and that's not, that, that, that's not an exaggeration. So basically, under Hitler, as he was rising to power, he helped push through the denaturalization law of 1933, as well as the Reich citizenship laws, and the 11th decree to the Reich Citizenship Law of 1941, okay? And they did so. They passed these laws. The Nazi government then deprived hundreds of thousands of Germans of their citizenship rights, really their human rights. Get this. On the grounds that their socialist views or Jewish or Roma background placed them outside the Volksgemeinschaft, in other words, outside what white people, white Christians wanted. Okay, people were stripped of denaturalization and Reich citizenship laws. People that were citizens in Germany that were either either became naturalized citizens, passing a test proving they're loyal, or you know already a citizenship by birth, they were stripped of their human rights because your citizenship excuse me your citizenship rights are your human rights. They were stripped of their citizenship rights because of perceived or real political ideas. You know, either they had a socialist view or because they were born into Jewish families or Roma families. Roma was what we commonly call gypsies. That's it. Now, my question is, is I don't think Trump is bright enough to come up with this stuff on his own. But in the past, he's had advisors like Stephen Miller who studied Hitler and, you know, push this stuff, give him the information. For the record, Stephen Miller was born into a Jewish family, and speaking as a Jew myself, we don't have uh, excommunication like Catholics do, but when I see garbage, pieces of garbage like Stephen Miller, I wish we did, because 
we can't make excuses for a little bastard like Stephen Miller. Okay, what he's doing is against what we're taught. But once again, this is what Trump is is planning. He's planning on not only forbidding certain kinds of people from coming into the country because of what they believe, but he wants to strip citizens of their citizenship rights, either because of what they've uttered through using their free speech rights or because they disagree with the fascist Republicans or because they happen to be someone who's not white enough or Jewish, not white enough or Christian enough. That's it. That's what he's feeding to his red meat supporters. It is pure Nazism. For any president or past president, for any politician to even suggest that citizens be stripped of their citizenship rights because they disagreed with them, that's unconstitutional. That's treason. And his crowd ate it up. This is an incredibly important story. Now, even on the alternative news on the left, like, for instance, you can go to the Young Turks with Cenk Uger and Anna Kasparian, and they were talking about this story. But they were also kind of joking around, you know, making fun of Trump's accent, you know, section 212, you know, and kind of joking it off as if, you know, this isn't really going to come to pass. Don't underestimate this. Christian nationalism is incredibly dangerous, and Trump is basically panhandling, um, I'm sorry, he's pandering to these people. And, you know, people used to laugh at Hitler at first. You know, what Hitler got done, murdering 11 million people, 6.5 million were Jews, didn't happen overnight. And it didn't happen with, it didn't start out with concentration camps and death camps. It started out with book bans and book burnings. It started out with laws that stripped citizens that happened to be Jewish or happened to be on the left wing that were liberal intellectuals, stripped them of their citizenship rights. That's how it started. This is not a laughing matter, especially for those of us that don't look white enough and aren't Christian. Make no mistake about it. And for Chuck Todd, going back to my original story, for Chuck Todd to ignore this story is criminal on his part as far as I'm concerned. Instead, he's talking about a crisis of addiction, which, guess what? There aren't political solutions to addiction. There are medical solutions, period. But again, Chuck Todd chose to waste valuable airtime with that nonsense. This is what Donald Trump is talking about here. Every time, they, and, and the thing is, Trump and his allies have been systematically slandering, libeling, and defaming anyone who disagrees with them, calling teachers pedophiles or groomers for the life of me, or, and calling certain politicians that. I know that if I were a member of the Congress or the U.S. Senate and one of his Trumpers called me a pedophile or groomer, They would be served with papers. I would sue them for slander, libel, and defamation. I wouldn't care whether I won or not. I would would basically slap them down. We can't – just ignoring this or appeasing these people won't work. Believe me, it won't work. Six million of my – six and a half million of my people found that out the, the tragic way. 
and look at what they're doing. This is kind of my diatribe for today. Even the diary of Anne Frank is they're trying to ban. Because God forbid privileged white Christian boys should feel any discomfort, you know, over any injustices, past or present. Well, newsflash, if you don't feel discomfort witnessing something that you know is wrong, that means you don't have a conscience. This is exactly what Hitler did. You know, the Moms for Liberty group that, by the way, through dark money is partially funded by the Koch network, Newsflash. They used a quote that Hitler used about basically whoever controls the youth controls the future. They knew what they were doing, the leaders of that group. There's no accidents here, but they're taking advantage of a population that hasn't been taught much about the rise of Hitler. Even millennials and Generation Z, they don't know much about Hitler's rise because it wasn't taught in the schools. It should have been. It should have been. So, yes, I'm quite emotional today because, again, what Trump is doing here, and, again, it's not just Trump, somebody's aiding him and abetting him, is outrageous. You know, I live in a conservative area, and frankly, I have neighbors that have smiled to my face, but I now realize I can't afford to trust them. Not at all. Not at all. And if you think that, you know, some people want me to talk about gun rights and, and gun laws, you think all these issues are dis, you know, disjointed. They're not. They all tie in together. All right. My theory about how white Christian males and females want guns and they don't want any gun laws, yeah, it's the gun lobby. They make a lot of money, and it's the NRA. But it's also about racism. It's also about anti-Semitism and misogyny because, put bluntly, these white Christian fundamentalists want to be able to have a well-stocked lynch mob so that they can attack minorities with legal impunity. That's it. They're not crazy. They know what they're doing. And they hide behind some silly jokes and innuendo. They hide behind dog whistle code that basically gives them just enough plausible deniability to say, we're not saying that. It's just a joke. No, it's not. No, it's not. If you have relatives or friends that are starting to think that, well, Trump's not so bad and DeSantis isn't so bad. DeSantis is every bit as bad as Donald Trump. Make no mistake about it. In some ways, I think DeSantis might might be more dangerous on one level. Trump is good at whipping up the lynch mob. He is much far more effective than DeSantis. But DeSantis is an Ivy League trained attorney. He can write those laws and make them airtight. And to my brothers and sisters in the black community, it was Dr. King that reminded everybody that everything that Hitler did was totally legal because he made sure the laws were in place to basically commit that, that, that genocide with legal impunity. And that is exactly what the GOP is doing. And the Democrats that are corporate Dems, are, they're, they're enabling it. 
They haven't done a damn thing to fight it. This is not just a legal fight. They haven't called these people out. I don't give a damn about bipartisanship. I really couldn't care less. I'm not interested in bipartisanship. Not when the other side is clearly emboldened neo-Nazis. As far as I'm concerned, they're garbage. And the only thing you do with garbage is dispose of it legally. I'm not talking violence, but I'm talking about if they do something illegal, then you incarcerate them. I'm not the slightest bit interested in bipartisanship when the other side is absolutely married to the idea that the only people that should have rights besides the rich, the, first the rich and then white Christian fundamentalist males. That's it. That's their whole thing. I'm done with it. And I'm done with any Democrat that fails to join the left and fails to fight for our rights. That's it. Apparently, January 6th wasn't enough of a wake-up call for Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren and Premier Jayapal and Hakeem Jeffries and all these other people to take this seriously. You know, they can afford private security. Most of us can't. So, again, this is a diatribe. And, again, damn, Chuck Todd of Meet the Press for ignoring this story. And we shouldn't be making jokes about it. You know, Donald Trump loves to clown. And the alt-right, the neo-Nazis of the GOP also like to clown because they know full well that behind those jokes they intend to commit violence. And they clown to basically catch the rest of us off guard so we don't take them seriously. Take them seriously. There's an old saying, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. That's what we're talking about here. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. You know, Trump has systematically, and again, through the aid of probably people like Stephen Miller and some others, to paint people of color as rabid, violent thugs. And this, you know, there's nothing new about this, all right? You know, I I was, what, in the 60s, I was a little kid. And the news portrayed blacks that way, the black community, even though it wasn't true. You know, for us to pretend that the mainstream, a.k.a. corporate press, you know, really tells the full truth, come on now. I hate to agree with Trump on anything. Um, You know, is there propaganda? Yes. That's why we need a a return to the fairness doctrine, to make newscasters tell the truth. That's it. It's really that simple. When Reagan got rid of the fairness doctrine, that's what gave rise to Fox. Make no mistake about it. But for any politician to threaten citizenship rights of groups that he disagrees with, that's outrageous. That's treason. In fact, it goes beyond that. Trump's suggesting that we will basically not just disenfranchise, but revoke citizenship of minorities and revoke citizenship of people on the left 
intellectuals, uh, people like Bernie Sanders, I suppose, um, you know, anybody who questions him, to suggest that, that is Hitlerian. That is exactly what Hitler did. So behind the jokes, behind Donald Trump embracing the flag like a three-year-old hugging a teddy bear, there's a monster. These Behind these jokes, there is a serious threat. Do not be do not be tricked by these little these little stunts. Make no mistake about it. The GOP has openly embraced Nazism. That's it. And I for one am tired of them slandering. Done with it. So this is the story that Chuck one of the stories that Chuck Todd chose to ignore. Isn't that delightful? Okay. And again, Trump's done this through his entire rise. He just has. So the Republicans have had a history of problems with Nazis. Make no mistake about it. Now, I will grant that during the lead-up before the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, the Democrats that were the Dixiecrats, and they were racist, and they embraced Jim Crow. And then after that, it switched to the GOP. But the GOP always had this as well. Okay? Um, So this is something where nothing's new here. You know, you don't have to look any further uh, in 1969, and this is basically some information. Uh, it's an article by Steve Hochstadt, and it's information that um, – let's see now. Oh, let me, let me back up here. Steve Hochstadt, he is an emeritus professor of history at Illinois College. Um, anyway, he won the Alan Charlin Prize of Social Science History Association – um, sources of the Holocaust in 2004 is a documents collection widely used in Holocaust courses. Keep in mind, you can study about the Holocaust in college, but they're not teaching it in high school very much, or they downplay it quite a bit. So the article I'm talking about was originally published by Tikkun, which is an interfaith and secular humanist voice for social justice. But, you know, once again, this is talking about the troubled history that the GOP has, as they used to embrace Nazism, but, you know, quietly. They didn't say uh, the ugly part out loud. So going back to 1969, you had Republican Heritage – you had the um, Republican Heritage Groups Council, and this group excluded black and Jewish Americans. The founders – unsurprisingly, were former Nazis and neo-Nazis. You have to remember, after World War II, the U.S. government permitted some Nazis to come into the country, usually because they were scientists and they wanted their knowledge. They shouldn't have been allowed in. Okay? Um, So, more Republicans stand next to Nazis without actually praising Hitler directly. Um, So, let's go on here. White supremacy is not only something that Republicans have embraced. What a lot of Americans don't understand is the Nazi message was all about white supremacy. 
when they talk about the Aryan race, they were talking about the whitest of the white. We were talking white blonde hair, blue eyes, pale skin, okay? Um, and so, for instance, this is something where, this is probably where, you know, some of these Republicans get their idea that, that nonsense white replacement theory. You know, the idea that Democrats and the left are trying to replace real Americans with my, with uh, communities of color. And that white replacement theory has been openly embraced by Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, and House Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik. Carlson has really pushed that theory. Okay. Again, there's nothing new here. All right. There just isn't. Um, then you had Republicans basically anything they disagree with they compared to Nazis. All right. So, for instance, Lauren Boebert uh, said the people that advocated for vaccinations were like Nazis. It's like, sweetie, you don't know what Nazis are. Okay. Um, what else? Lara Logan, who's a host on Fox News Media Streaming Service, um, said back in November that Dr. Fauci, quote, represents Joseph Mengele. Mengele was the Nazi doctor that committed all sorts of atrocities on Jews, especially Jewish children, including operating on them while they were still awake. Make no mistake about it. Um, so once again... Those type of comments demean the Holocaust. All right? They just do. When I call Republicans out as, as, as Nazis, that's because the, the actual um, policies they're pushing are I, virtually identical to what Hitler did. But I'm not going to call somebody who irritates me a Nazi. That's ridiculous. Okay? So... You know, once again, American conservatives, they embrace their ignorance and also their ugliness, their big, multiple bigotries. And they've confused the Jewish population because they, you know, they embrace Israel. Well, newsflash, being pro-Israel doesn't mean you're, you're not anti-Semitic. You know, why do evangel evangelicals embrace Israel? Because in their revelation story, Israel must become an enormous, powerful nation so that the apocalypse can come, Armageddon can come, and all the good white Christians will be elevated to heaven while the rest of us will be sent to hell. With friends like that, we don't need any enemies. These same people that are so pro-Israel also make anti-Semitic remarks constantly. All right? So this is what we're dealing with here. I know I'm kind of, kind of ramp, you know, kind of rambling a little. So, and now we find that teachers of American history are the targets of Republican censorship, and that's according to Scalawag Magazine. All right. There's a lot more here. We can't get into all of it today. What I just want to point out very simply is this. When you have any politician say, suggesting that we should, as a nation, revoke the citizenship rights of people we disagree with, 
or revoke the citizenship rights of certain minorities just because they exist, these are Nazis. That is exactly what Hitler did. Make no mistake about it. And we will be talking about this some more. We will. But I want to move on to the next story. So that's one of the stories that Chuck Todd chose to ignore. The second story is a Supreme Court case. There were several handed down. One was the one about student debt relief, which is tragic. Another one is about ending affirmative action, which again is tragic. But this one, Moore v. Harper, is the most dangerous. Make no mistake about it. And so Moore v. Harper deals with a legal fiction or theory called the Independent State Legislature's Doctrine. And what it does is it allows, you know, state. the idea would be that let's say a state like Pennsylvania, in the next election, Biden won. If in this, let's say the state legislature in, in Pennsylvania dominated by Republican conservatives, under this doctrine, if this case had succeeded, those legislators could say, no, we don't care what the majority of people in Pennsylvania voted for. We're tossing their votes, and we're going to send Trump electors to the Electoral College. It's exactly what Trump wanted. You know, this basically would give state legislatures the the right to throw out our votes, especially for president, and they would decide who the president was there. That should, everybody should find that incredibly scary. So I did a piece on this, ironically, over a year ago. I didn't realize it had been that long. This piece published March 27, 2022, and it's part of a series that I, that I am still working on called Judicial Capture. And this ran first in BuzzFlash and then in Nation of Change. And you can still find both. And so I'm going to read you this piece, and I'll, I'll interrupt certain times to explain certain things as I need to. But, you know, it pretty much says it. So here we go. The title is Supreme Court Conservatives About to Kill Fair Elections Permanently. Now, first one thing I need to let you know. In the case of Moore v. Harper, a decision by the Supreme Court this is in the pieces of me talking. The Supreme Court this week, this past Thursday, placed, um, they set down a decision on Moore v. Harper. And in it they said, eh, no, we're not buying the independent state legislature's doctrine. So for right now, our right to have our votes somewhat respected is still intact. Okay, or as intact as it can be with the Electoral College still existing. All right. Um, the legislature can't just change their electors because they feel like it. So the Supreme Court did the right thing up to a point on this one. That doesn't mean the danger's over. So this piece was written over a year ago when the danger was still there. Now, in this piece here, it was on the shadow docket. That was back in 2022. And the shadow docket is like a back door to the Supreme Court. And in it, as I read, you'll find the shadow docket, they just make decisions. It's usually just, it's supposed to be for technical things, okay? So it doesn't take up too much of the court's time. It's supposed to be like a quickie. But on the shadow docket, they don't have to listen to oral arguments. They don't have to review documents. The justices don't sign off. They just kind of go yay or nay. 
So first was on the shadow docket. Thank God it made it to the real docket. So now I'm going to start with my piece. Here we go. Okay, this is my piece. Conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court are readying their rhetorical knives to kill fair elections in the United States permanently. Their weapon of choice is a long discredited legal fiction known as the Independent State Legislature's Doctrine. Okay. Um, this doctrine makes the claim that state legislatures have the sole right to create or alter all state-level election laws. The doctrine denies state-level courts any standing to adjudicate these election laws, end quote. I'm going to stop here for a minute just to get, make some clarity. Standing is what you have to have in court. When you have standing, it means you have a right to sue. If the court says you don't have standing, they're saying you do not have a right to sue. And adjudication is basically the process of going to court and having the court listen to evidence and decide. Okay, back to my article. So, again, the last sentence, the doctrine denies state-level courts any standing to adjudicate these election laws. It was reintroduced by Republicans via two cases accepted on the shadow docket. The cases to watch are Moore v. Harper and Toth v. Chapman. Though seemingly routine on the surface, they have dire implications for open and fair elections. Both cases deal with redistricting. On a deeper level, they could legitimize gerrymandering as a permanent fixture with no right of judicial review based on the old states' rights trope. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. Marvie Harper was, was actually decided. The decision was handed down Thursday. I don't know the status of Toth v. Chapman at this point in time. Again, this article was written in March of 22. I guess I was ahead of things. Okay. Redistricting is what is done every so many years as population changes in a state, and it's done for the purpose of deciding how many representatives each state gets in the House of Representatives in D.C. Gerrymandering is basically writing districts in such an asinine, crazy way that you have all the voters of one party in that district. And it's a way, it's the way a lot of uh, smaller, more rural states take over state legislatures because the non-Republican voters in each district are outnumbered. And it's by the way, they write it crazy here in, and again, I'm just talking right now here in Missouri, the third congressional district, which Dick Gephardt had for a long time, was redrawn for uh, Russ Carnahan, and you had this section in the city and part of St. Louis County, and then you had, which is like you know, like a little square, like it would look like, and then you had this little sliver that extended all the way across the state, so that you could hold on to the district. That's gerrymandering. Now, in this instance, the Democrats did it. But the Republicans are the ones that do it more often, and it's illegitimate, okay? It's, it's a form of cheating. All right, so back to my article. These cases are the litigious trial balloon engineered to institute an illegitimate power grab by GOP-controlled state legislatures, solidifying voter suppression schemes, bringing Jim Crow 2.0 raging back in full racist glory. On to the cases. Moore v. Harper, and Toth v. Chapman. In the Moore case, the North Carolina Supreme Court struck down gerrymandered maps of congressional districts which were drawn up by state Republicans. The GOP didn't agree with the state Supreme Court and in both cases appealed not to the federal district court, 
to the U.S. Supreme Court shadow docket, which allows sub- such sidestepping of established appellate procedure. In the top case, the pre- Pennsylvania Supreme Court chose a congressional map after the Republican-dominated legislature and the Democratic governor were irretrievably deadlocked. Republicans in both states made the specious claim that state courts had no standing to intervene in redistricting cases based on the independent state legislature's doctrine. So, what is the independent state legislature's doctrine and why is it dangerous? Ian Milheiser wrote in Vox that, quote, the independent state legislature's doctrine derives from a deceptively simple reading of the Constitution. Milheiser explained further that the advocates of this doctrine based its justification on one solitary phrase in the Constitution, which states that, quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, end quote. And that's as documented by the Legal Information Institute of Cornell University. Milheiser added that, quote, a separate provision says that presidential elections shall also be conducted in a manner determined by the state legislature. And that is as documented by the National Constitution Center, uh, talking about Article II, the executive branch. Based on this rigid and simplistic constitutional interpretation, election laws would be solely determined by the state legislatures, with state courts stripped of any authority to adjudicate much less reverse abusive laws established by many of the same historically racist legislatures. Again, in theory, this doctrine would legitimize Jim Crow 2.0 with no subsequent standing to sue. This is the old states' rights trope writ large by the GOP. It grants the power of aristocratic privilege to the legislature, essentially declaring a license to discriminate with impunity. Voter suppression and intimidation would be technically legal, once again, with no right of judicial appeal. The question remains, is this doctrine a legitimate interpretation of election law? Is this a theme, I'm sorry, is this a scheme to strip universal voting rights using the structure of originalist constitutional theory? What is the history behind this radical interpretation that has been lurking in the shadows of the conservative imagination? Take a drink here. Once again, Ian Milheiser, writing for Vox, provides a succinct explanation over the propaganda of conservative Ivy League drones. Milheiser himself has legal credentials, including a JD magna cum laude from Duke University. He has authored two books on the Supreme Court, namely Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted, and the agenda, how a Republican Supreme Court is reshaping America. There are three major problems Milheiser identified regarding this doctrine. The first problem comes directly from 100 years of previous SCOTUS, in other words, Supreme Court precedent on record, which rejected the doctrine. When I say SCOTUS, that's the same as Supreme Court. The second problem is ironically of originalist nature, stating that the voting public at the time of the nation's founding also rejected the doctrine. Finally, Milheiser explained that this doctrine in actual application is unworkable. Milheiser also pointed out this doctrine constitutes a direct attack on democracy, and this is all documented 
in a piece on Vox, I Millheiser, titled, Supreme Court, the fate of U.S. elections is in Amy Coney Barrett's hands. So let's move on. Problem number one, 100 years of Supreme Court precedent rejecting the doctrine. The judicial system in America works on the idea of precedent in order to allegedly remain faithful to the law. There is on record 100 years of unchallenged precedent that has clearly rejected the independent state legislature's doctrine. The main precedent-setting cases are Davis v. Hildebrandt, Smiley v. Holm, Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, and Rucho v. Common Cause. Davis v. Hildebrandt, 1916. The first case, Davis v. Hildebrandt, 1916, dealt with one simple question. Do the people retain the right to alter or change state election laws via the use of the referendum? Okay, I'm going to stop here for a second. The referendum is when people collect signatures on a petition to bring uh, an issue they want to the ballot and just just ignoring the legislature because they weren't going to do it. And it's legitimate, okay? Back to my piece. The Davis case examined a provision in the Ohio State Constitution that granted voters a right to veto state laws using the referendum process. Davis presented with congressional maps created by the Ohio legislature, which were rejected by the people in a referendum election. The Supreme Court agreed in a unanimous opinion that Ohio's referendum right was valid. The Davis case took the term legislature to reference any group of people who were granted the power to make laws within a state as a legislative power. Since the Ohio Constitution granted such power via the referendum provision, the referendum, quote, the referendum was treated as part of the legislative power and, quote, should be held and treated to be the state legislative power for the purpose of creating congressional districts by law, end quote. Subsequently, voters casting ballots in a referendum election are part of that state legislature as viewed by cited relevant provisions in the U.S. Constitution, and that's from the Supreme Court. The next case, Smiley v. Holm. The case of Smiley v. Holm, 1932, asked whether a governor had the legitimate power to veto a bill which impacted federal elections. The independent state legislator doctrine would issue a resounding no to this question as a governor is not from the state's legislative branch. Again, the Supreme Court rejected this rigid reading of the Constitution, claiming that state election laws must be enacted using the same processes as any other state law. Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. The Supreme Court reviewed the case of Arizona State Legislature versus the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission in 2015, 2015. Again, plaintiffs, I'm sorry, again, plaintiffs arguing the doctrine asked whether individual states could license a bipartisan commission to create congressional maps. Plaintiffs pushing the independent state legislature doctrine claimed that such a right never existed since the commission is not part of the actual state legislature and legislatures in quotes. The Supreme Court rejected the argument. It's in SupremeCourt.gov. The court summarized past decisions on this issue and wrote that, quote, our precedent teaches that redistricting is a legislative function to be performed in accordance with the state's prescriptions for lawmaking, which may include the referendum and the governor's veto, end quote. This case sustained the idea that voters in a state could further enact a state law, quote, 
transferring the power to draw legislative maps to a commission, end quote, using the ballot initiative process. Milheiser also highlighted the hypocrisy of the four current conservatives on the Supreme Court as they seem to reject the doctrine in the Arizona case, yet endorse the very same doctrine when it seemed to improve Trump's re-election bid in 2020. Now, Rucho v. Common Cause. This happened in 2019, right before the election. The Rucho case addressed whether federal courts have standing to hear lawsuits challenging partisan gerrymanders. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Need a little water here. Hmm. The majority opinion decided that federal courts do not have that authority. I'm going to start that again. It was a little choppy. This is Rucho v. Common Cause 2019, right before the election. The Rucho case addressed whether federal courts have standing to hear lawsuits challenging partisan gerrymanders. Uh, end quote. And I'm going to say basically to hear cases where a gerrymander is done to you know, ensure that one party gets an unfair advantage. Okay, going on. The majority opinion decided that federal courts do not have that authority. Conservative Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Kavanaugh joined the majority opinion. The Rucho decision also recognized that states may limit their legislature's power to create congressional maps stating that, quote, provisions in state statutes and state constitutions can provide standards and guidance for state courts to apply, end quote, and that's within the context of partisan gerrymandering cases. According to Milheiser, Rucho came close to endorsing, quote, constitutional amendments creating multi-member commissions that will be responsible in whole or in part for creating and approving district maps for congressional and state legislative districts, end quote. Problem number two. The doctrine was rejected by the founding, by the founding voters. There is strong evidence from the nation's founders showing that showing they rejected the idea that state legislatures be granted unchecked power over laws governing federal elections. Legal scholars Vikram Amar from University of Illinois College of Law and Akhil Amar from the Yale Law School published a paper titled Eradicating Bush League Arguments Root and Branch, the Article II Independent State Legislator Notion and Related Rubbish. I love that. They explained how four of the 13 original states adopted specific state constitutional provisions which restricted legislative power to determine the rules governing federal elections. If the independent state legislator doctrine were a legitimate mandate deriving from the Constitution, those restrictions placed on state legislatures would have been declared unconstitutional. Here's the kicker. These limits on state legislatures were put in place during the first term of President George Washington. It doesn't get any more originalist than that. The authors also noted in their paper that, quote, at least two early states that provided for vetoes for general legislative action employed such vetoes in the process by which federal election rules were made. Additionally, in Massachusetts, quote, bills regulating federal elections were not considered by the legislative houses alone, but were presented to and subject to disapproval by the governor, end quote. Furthermore, in New York, quote, such bills were subjected to a council of review that included not only the governor, but also members of the state judiciary, end quote. 
It appears that contrary to sponsors of this doctrine, which represents a radical power shift from the electorate to the state legislatures, the actual founding I'm sorry, the actual founding voters understood that those state-level legislatures were never granted carte blanche power over election law. The voters of George Washington's time understood that an overly ambitious state legislature can be placed in check by the state constitution, the state judiciary, or governor's veto. There was no such thing as the independent state legislator's doctrine at the founding and creation of the U.S. Constitution. You can just hear that mic drop, can't you? Moving on to problem number three, the independent state legislature doctrine is utterly unworkable. The pseudo-logic of this doctrine is a formula for legislative chaos. If the doctrine is accepted at face value, there would, then there would be no mechanism to check the decisions made by each state legislature as the state courts are excluded from the question of how a state runs federal elections. Basically, this doctrine has no provision for any judicial referee function. Legislators, legislatures pass laws, but state courts are forbidden from ruling how to apply those laws under this dangerous theory. The independent state legislature's doctrine takes state courts out of the equation in direct violation of precedent dating back to 1803 in the case of Marbury v. Madison. In fact, the Marbury case established the authority of the Supreme Court when it clearly stated that, quote, it is emphatically the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must, of necessity, expound and interpret the rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the court must decide on the operation of each. And that's as documented from Justia U.S. Supreme Court Center, Marbury v. Madison. Going on. With the Marbury decision in mind, which should meet even the most stringent standards of any originalist, let's return to the Moore case, currently before the shadow docket of the U.S. Supreme Court. Keep in mind that the shadow docket allows the court to decide a case without oral arguments, review of necessary documents, or identifying signatures of each justice. Now, I'm going to stop here for a minute. Again, this case, this was written, published in March of 22 when Moore v. Harper was on the shadow docket. It was removed from the shadow docket and put on the regular document, thank God. That's one way of having a little transparency, but I just wanted to clarify for the purposes of this article. The Moore case deals with redistricting in North Carolina, a state with a long history of voter suppression and other Jim Crow violations. North Carolina does, however, have a state constitutional provision which forbids the legislature from creating any redistricting maps. That particular provision was proposed by the state legislature and became part of the state constitution. This is the very provision that the North Carolina Supreme Court relied on to revoke gerrymandered maps created by Republicans, and that's on document clouds. Subsequently, the facts in the Moore case clearly demonstrate that the court did not overrule the state legislature in any regard. The argument is between a gerrymandered congressional redistricting map endorsed by Republicans and a previous constitutional provision that was also endorsed by both parties in the state legislature. The relevant question remains, which branch of government should decide what the law is and how it should be applied in order to remain true to constitutional principles. As we saw in Marbury v. Madison, the judiciary is the branch tasked with deciding these questions. 
stripping the judiciary of their constitutional duties as the GOP would demand, using this ill-conceived doctrine, reduces state election laws to impotent wish list. Stripping state courts of the duty to adjudicate state election law or any state law removes the courts from our tripartite system of government. The independent state legislator doctrine is nothing but the very legislative overreach that the GOP shrieks about continually as they systemically work to dismantle democratic rule. Okay, a little drink here. Get dry talking this long. The independent state legislature's doctrine as an attack on democracy itself. This doctrine is an attack on the very existence of democracy. It strips state courts of any right to judicial review regarding election law, both in congressional and presidential elections equally. Taken to its most extreme form, legislatures could bring back the most virulent forms of Jim Crow with impunity, which is its allure to the GOP. Redistricting is the tip of the iceberg, as the full spectrum of election law could fall under the umbrella of this fraudulent doctrine. Accountability and transparency in election law would be reduced to a cruel joke. There is no veto power for governors and no right to judicial review through the courts. This doctrine is a blank check for state legislatures. It is a criminal ploy pushed by a GOP determined to maintain power at any cost. It cynically exposes GOP claims of judicial restraint, respect for precedence, and originalism as little more than, quote, doctrines of convenience useful until they get in the way of a desired political result. And that's as documented by the court's report from the U.S. Senate. And I'm getting into that now. A recent report prepared by Democrats Democratic Senators Stabenow, Schumer, and White House titled Captured Courts documented how the GOP has plotted to control the judiciary using legal deceit. To quote from the document, quote, this report looks behind the curtain of the GOP's long campaign of judicial capture into the fundamental threat it poses to the rule of law and American democracy, end quote. And make no mistake, we are in a state of judicial capture. Conservative jurists are promoting pseudo-legal theories lacking constitutional merit, such as the major questions, non-delegation, and the independent state legislature's doctrines, which are designed to dismantle the very federal laws hated by the corporate state. Additionally, evidence of an ethically compromised SCOTUS or Supreme Court is accumulating as conservative dark money groups spend millions on political pressure campaigns to promote the judicial flavor of the month, guaranteed to produce SCOTUS decisions favored by corporate coffers. And this is documented by Open Secrets, titled Secretive Conservative Legal Group Funded by $17 Million Mystery Donor Before Kavanaugh Fight. This is an older article. Going back to this, the idea, the idea of judicial independence from politics, especially at the Supreme Court, has become another sick joke. Our nation is at a legal and ethical crossroads where we must choose between actual rule of law or the rule of judicial capture. To pretend that the U.S. Supreme Court is above politics is as ludicrous as claiming to be a little bit pregnant and just as obvious. And that's the piece I published over a year ago. It's something that, again, is still relevant to what we're talking about here 
when we're talking about Moore v. Harper. As I said, the, the Supreme Court handed down the decision in Moore v. Harper just this past Thursday. And, you know, basically they said no to the proponents of the independent state legislature's doctrine. That doesn't mean that the conservatives on the court really are on our side. It just means it went too far. And as I heard Jenk, um, oh, Lord, uh, Jenk Uger and Anna Kasparian talking about this um, on their show, this looks like the Supreme Court realizing that if they allow this to fly, they're cutting their own power. And they want to elevate the courts above, you know, everything else. So it's a double-edged sword. We did miss, we did basically dodge a bullet, though. Okay, but keep in mind, the same people that are for Donald Trump were the same legal eagles that pushed this illegitimate theory. Make no mistake about it. Okay? So now we're going to go back here. And again, I'm sorry about Professor Lee's, um, you know, her interview. Hopefully we can get that going next week. Um, you know, it's sad, but it's true. So now let's go to, okay, we're going to go to my one of my favorite little specials, our My Little Margie segment. Okay. It's going to be a short one today. So here we go. And now, my little Margie. What will Margie do this time? Is she going to take male hormones to keep those big guns going? Is she going to just shoot her mouth off or basically shoot her mouth off? Who knows what her little Neanderthal brain will do. So here we go with, you know... Here we go. Our little Margie. What can I say? Music was kind of loud today. And so, anyway, Marjorie is doing it again. She has apparently a podcast that she calls, what is it she calls her thing? Battleground? Yeah, MTG Battleground. And the T is a sword. And she's in this, this big, I think it's a Jeep tank kind of hybrid and she's got this giant gun okay i mean we're talking you know it's 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 like basically uh you know a giant penis that carries bullets and you know she's looking tough and she is you know promoting her podcast and promoting violence essentially you know she has been caught saying uh you know and again i'm going to kind of imitate her little accent um, you know, she's basically said, I want to tell you something. Now she's talking about January 6th. I want to tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention we would have been armed. And so, you know, once again, it's been condemned on Twitter, at least by rational people. But, you know, once again, you have to see this. Her post is a threat of violence. Um, there's no guessing here. Uh, you know, it just is, it is what she's doing, okay? Um, 
you know, what can we do about her? Uh, this people have a right to vote for who they want, but let's face facts. There are neo-Nazis in the Republican Party that are sending to Congress morons like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, and then you've got some others that are just plain insane. And, and once again, these are people that the idea that before Trump we had a black president made their brains, what little brains they have, explode. Make no mistake about it. And then, you know, you have people of color that are demanding their equal rights, and these people can't handle it. Okay, that's what little Margie's doing now. And so in that theory, so we're going to just go back here and again. In that, here we go. So once again, Marjorie Taylor Greene is our little Margie. You know, what can you do? You can't capture, you know, she's crazy. We know it. But that's our little Margie. All right. So that's Margie for us this week. Again, a little tired here. So now we're going to go to something. We have a caller here. Hold on a second. Um, you know, once again, we have a little time. I We're moving on to the next thing. I will. I don't normally take calls until the last 15 minutes, but I will entertain this person. Here we go. You're on Progressive News Network. Hi. Um, hi, my name's Khalil. Sorry about that. I don't know what's going on. My, I was just trying to listen to the show before um, calling in. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't press the button, but I, um, I really like your show. Sorry about that. Thank I don't you. know what's going on. That's I, okay. I haven't pressed one all right. Well, I'm glad that you enjoy it, and we're we're kind of tying up. I do apologize for the fact my colleague had this wonderful interview, and something went wrong with the tech. So next week we will have the interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee. Um, we're tying up things right now with a little bit of humor. So sit back and enjoy the rest of the show, and thank you. Okay. Oh, how do I? Okay. Well, that was nice to hear for a change. <laughs> I don't hear that very often. Oh, all righty. So now um, we're going to move on. And give me a second here. We're having so many technical problems today. We're moving on to now our Jackass of the Week Award. It's going to be very quick. All right. Here we go. Come on, tech. Welcome to... PNN's Jackass of the Week Awards. We have a very special jackass this week. Here we go. So this week, our special jackass of the week is Meet the Press's own Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd passed, as I said earlier and throughout this show, he passed on two critically important stories that really decided whether or not democratic rule would end and whether or not a neo-Nazi state would actually be built up around the evil orange one. And what did Mr. Todd choose to embrace? The fentanyl crisis. And And I'm not mocking the fentanyl crisis, but let's be honest. It's a medical problem. It needs a medical solution. But it gave Chuck Todd and his enablers plenty of room to ignore the important stories. For that reason, we give Chuck Todd our Jackass of the Week Award! Carry on, Chuck! Carry on! Bravo! All righty. So that's that. 
And now our last feature, this is, I love it. I Hopefully you all can hear it. I think it's funny as, get, as I'll get out. This is our little special, Randy Rainbow and his erudite musical wisdom. And this is Randy's take on little Margie. So let's get this going. Give me. No. Okay, that's a mistake. That's a technical error. Okay, here we go.
Okay, so there's our girl, you're a Karen. That was funny. Okay. So now, just final thoughts. All right. We are in a state of corporate capture. Make no mistake about it. Uh, just this past week, there was another peaceful protest against Cop City. The past three weeks, we've been running uh, a show on Cop City and the and the fight to stop it. And um, once again, they did it. All right. So this is something from L.A. Progressive, and it was published by Michael Gold Wartowski, June 29th, Field Notes of the Government's War on the Left. And so, you know, once again, you have a peaceful protest against, opposite, against excuse me, Cop City, and there was a strike force of Georgia State troopers that were kind of in the shadows, and um, they just attacked people, basically. Uh, we will probably talk about this again. Uh, there was a, an activist named Priscilla Grimm. All right. Uh, she said it was after dark, and she said, quote, I was walking to see the concert. Apparently there was a concert going on, okay? So let me back up here a bit. Um, there was a music festival in the area of the South River Forest, which is apparently part of the land that they want for Cop City. And there were... You know, older people there and kids, and they were listening to a band called Suede Cassidy. Their families that were grilling, you know, basically just a big a big picnic. And the band played, and then all of a sudden the strike force of Georgia State troopers kind of kettled them in the shadows. And um, then there were drones, and then they heard these people heard helicopters overhead, and then these these troopers came from them from all directions. Their fingers are already on the triggers of semi-automatic weapons. And then orders came down, get on the ground, no! Okay? And uh, there was, let's see, there's a quote here from Suede Cassidy frontman Jeremiah Percival. That was the band, Suede Cassidy. And he said, quote, I was playing all along the watchtower, funnily enough. Around halfway through our set, they started arresting people, pointing AR-15s, traumatizing kids for nothing. It was very Stormtrooper-esque. It's a good reminder to know how fascism is in this country and how it's very much alive. End quote. That's from the band themselves. Uh, an activist, a Stop Cop City activist named Priscilla Grimm also was quoted saying, quote, It was after dark. I was walking to see the concert, and I noticed that there was a drone tracking me. And the next thing I knew, men started chasing me, and I fell. They had me turn over on my stomach, and there was the red light of the gun sight to the right of my head. It was frightening, end quote. So Priscilla and 22 other protesters were essentially legally kidnapped by these troopers, and they were charged, get this, with domestic terrorism. Okay, and that's uh, as documented by the AtlantaPD.org. Okay, and the conduct allegedly, quote, intended to intimidate the civilian population or to, quote, alter, change, or coerce the policy of the government of this state, end quote. So this is I've talked about these overly broad statutes on the program before, and this was a Georgia statute as documented by lawjustia.com. And once again, this is these overbroad, overly broad statutes that 
it's selective enforcement. Make no mistake about it. Um, now, supposedly the Georgia statute was supposed to deter would-be killers um, after the Charleston AME massacre, but that's not how it's being used. And Priscilla went on to say, quote, I was completely shocked when I heard that I was being charged with domestic terrorism for wearing black in a forest. It's absurd. It's illegitimate. It's an abuse. And as a survivor of 9-11, I'm insulted that the state of Georgia thinks that they can do this, end quote. <clears throat> and this is happening all over. It's not just Georgia. New York City Police Department has also recently attempted to charge multiple protesters with, quote, terrorism after, quote, they peacefully occupied a subway station to protest the choking death of Jordan Neely, who was a homeless person. A homeless New Yorker, uh, and he was choked to death by an ex-Marine. So, ironically, the charges were finally downgraded from terrorism to criminal trespassing, and then they were dropped. So, across the country, acting, you know, as a fascist element, make no mistake about it. And this is from L.A. Progressive. When you look at this type of stuff, we have to wonder where we're going as a country. Okay, uh, I have friends that, you know, live in the suburbs. They are, you know, middle class and or affluent moms especially. And every time they say, oh, I don't want to hear about politics, I, I, I'm not into it. I swear to God, I want to smack them. Because how in the world can a legitimate person just, you know, give up, their, not just the rights, but the responsibility we are all in this together, and people that are comfortably ensconced in their, their suburbs and in their you know, private streets, they don't understand. They're next. Make no mistake about it. Fascists don't stop. They, you know, they want to just terrorize everybody that isn't their little group. So the Stop Cop City movement is another element in this this not just creep, this march to fascism. Make no mistake about it. And we've got to get people to wake up. We just do. I mean, and, and I know this sounds like a downer, but I think that this program was absolutely necessary going into the 4th of July. They just, it just is. You know, as Americans, we, you know, I won't say as Americans, I'll say for practical purposes it seems like white Christians they enjoy their mythology they want to believe their mythology that basically the history of America it looks something like Disney World you know Main Street Disneyland that's not the case it's not the truth and we can't fix our problems if we refuse to really face the truth and the fact is this country was built on the backs and the wealth of this country was built on the backs of black slaves period you cannot escape that fact. The wealth of this country was also, to a lesser extent, but also built on the backs of impoverished migrants that were forced to work in sweatshops. My, one of my grandfathers was one of them, where they'd lock you in. If there was a fire, you just died. That was it. Make no mistake about it. The promises that are in the Constitution originally were only meant to apply to white Christian men who owned property. And while it was a historic document, it's certainly not a holy one. 
Now our job is to expand and guarantee those rights to all humans, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of, of, of gender, sexual orientation, whatever. And regardless of immigration status, I'm going to say it, no human being is illegal. Those rights in the Bill of Rights are human rights. And every human should automatically be granted those human rights. We have a lot of work to do. And instead of playing with fireworks and having a barbecue and checking out that sale, that big box store, how about we start talking about what's wrong with this country and what actually could be done to make it right? None of this is being done by accident. This assault on democracy began at the height of the great middle class. You know, in the 1960s, early 1960s, the middle class was the most sizable part of the population. Unions were strong. And then industry through the, excuse me, through the GOP went to a corporate lawyer by the name of Lewis Powell who a year later became a Supreme Court Justice. And he wrote a plan that is referred to just benignly as the Powell Memo. And in it, it gives a blueprint for destroying democracy, destroying equal rights for minorities and women, destroying uh, labor rights to get a fair deal, destroying unions, destroying public schools, and making sure they don't tell the truth. Because the moneyed classes that were at that time predominantly white and Christian, they thought we had too much democracy. You need to let that sink in. And those of you that get upset every time you see a black athlete take a knee, you need to understand the background behind that, especially when they don't want to hear the national anthem. Because the national anthem was racist. You know, when I was a kid, we only learned the first two lyrics, okay, the first two stanzas. We didn't learn the rest of it, okay? You know, we, and I'm going to read it in its entirety, the Star-Spangled Banner. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly be hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Second stanza. We're familiar with these. On the shore dimly seen through the mists of the deep where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes which is that which the breeze or the towering steep as it fitfully blows, half conceals, half discloses. Now catches the gleam of the morning's first beam in full glory reflected, now shines in the stream. Tis the star-spangled banner, or long may it wave, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Okay? And the last phrase, because I'm going I'm to read the third stanza last. The last stanza is, Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land 
Praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. And conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner, in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. All of it sounds, no problem. Here's the problem, the third stanza. And this is the stanza that we're not taught in school. And this is why the black community takes a knee. And I don't blame them. Once I heard this stanza, I took a knee also because it is vile. Here it is. And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country, should leave us no more? Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps' pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Look at those two, look at that. Those two lines, no refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. Now, if those of you that get insulted every time you see a black athlete take a knee, you don't want to face the truth, then you're part of the problem. Because Francis Scott Key was a slave owner, and he meant every word he wrote. In fact, I think it was on the Young Turks where they actually had a document that was in Key's own writing. There's no guesswork here. Once you hear that, I don't know how anybody can stand for the national anthem, much less sing it. We need a new one. And this is the true history of the 4th of July. We need to look deep into our conscience and our soul, and we must change. Because when you refuse to change, you're part of the problem. We have a caller. All right, here we go. Let's wait a minute. This thing's acting up. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, good afternoon, ma'am. How are you doing? I'm fine. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. My name is Mike. Hi, Mike. Yeah, I wanted to say, um, I noticed that your show, I believe, is politically progressive, so I'm assuming you're left liberal-leaning. Okay, I'm going to say it. I am unabashedly a flaming leftist, and I won't apologize for it. You know, fair enough. You don't need to. So um, I'm I'm an immigrant to this country, and Mm -hmm. I voted Democrat most of my time here. I've been here since I was a young kid. Mm -hmm. And... The last couple of years, I've got to the point where I, I can no longer vote Democrat. And what I've noticed in, in America, and this is somewhat of an outsider's perspective, but it seems like the liberals and the Democratic Party have – they say that they're the working class party. They represent the poor. Okay, the I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right here. There's a big difference between the left and the Democratic Party. They are not the same thing. Barack Obama is not a progressive Nancy Pelosi is not a progressive. Joe Biden is not a progressive. Progressives are people like the um, AOC, like Bernie Sanders. And this is not about Democrat versus Republican. I don't know what country you originated from. I'm only second generation off the boat myself. But the fact is, I don't like the corporate Democrats either. But being a person who is part Hispanic and a Jew... I cannot in good conscience ever vote for a monster like Donald Trump. So this is an instance where I don't usually take too many calls because, again, this is not Fox. 
This is not some of those other co- – we, we pay for this airtime. And I'm not going to have someone flip the script. If you don't like a progressive message, you're certainly welcome to go elsewhere. Have a good day. Okay. Now, some of you may have thought that that's a bit rude. You know what? I've heard that little diatribe before. Okay? You can't lump the Democrats with progressives. They are two separate things. A lot of progressives do run as Democrats and not as independents because every every state in the union has an extra uh, hoop to jump through to qualify on the ballot. And that takes extra money. So they tentatively run as Democrats. Um, but again, my, you know, as a progressive, no, I don't agree with the Democratic Party. I'm a progressive. And so to lump us together, I could see where that man was going, and maybe that's a little unfair of me, but I'm not going to play that little soft propaganda game. Okay? And I'm not going to entertain people that want to essentially, um, you know, take up my airtime, put bluntly. You know, I'm not going to have commenters that are essentially freeloaders so that they can push their propaganda. Lord knows there's plenty of room on Fox and, uh, you know, Newsmax and all that other junk. We're not going to do that here, and I won't tolerate it. So anyway, with that, I say try to have a happy fourth, but I will end with this. Regardless of whether you are a Republican or Democrat, that's irrelevant. When Nazism is being pushed, when racism is being pushed, when homophobia and transphobia, religious bigotry, misogyny, when all these injustices are being pushed, whether you like the Democrats or not is irrelevant. When you take that approach and go, but I'm going to vote for the Republican then, you're part of the problem. This is not – I will not allow – people that decide that they're comfortable with the GOP, I'm not going to let them have their Pontius Pilate moment. Not going to happen on this show. Period. Because I'm an aggressive progressor. I, progressive, and I don't play that game. At all. The bottom line is this, and it's something that uh, Cenk Uger and Anna Kasparian talked about on their show, The Young Turks, and I agree with. Because our voting system is so unfairly rigged to benefit the corporate parties, what you do is in the primaries, vote your conscience. That's when you vote green or you vote progressive or whatever. When it comes to presidential politics, then if your choice is a Nazi over a Democrat, if you vote for the Nazi, that means you're a Nazi. You know? Uh, and people will think, well, that's histrionic. No, it's not. You know, there was a book written by a doctoral candidate named Daniel Goldhagen, and the title of the book is Hitler's Willing Executioners. And in it, in his research, he found that the, um, the fairy tale that we had been led to believe that the people of Germany and conquered states, they were, during World War II, they were so terrified of the soldiers, they just went along with the Nazi war, the Nazi murder machine. Except that wasn't true. People in Germany welcomed the Nazis. Half the time when they wanted to uh, basically murder a bunch of people, especially Jews, the Nazi soldiers didn't even have to use their own bullets. Townspeople volunteered. Go look at the book, Hitler's Willing Executioners. So I'm not going to hear this, well, you know, I voted for Obama, but 
gosh, I can't vote with the Democrats. Eh, that's an excuse. When the choice is between a Nazi like Trump or a Nazi like DeSantis and a Democrat, you don't vote for the Nazi. So if you want your Pontius Pilate moment, if you want to absolve, you want absolution for what is basically your own internal bigotries, go elsewhere. You won't get it here. Not from me. So with that I say, by whatever you believe in, bless us. We have to stick together. We cannot allow these Nazis to win. Good night.